listeners, I'm your host this week, Justine Abson. This is the podcast where we tackle some of the trending topics, ideas and challenges across health and social care. This week, I'm speaking to Dr. Amelia Malimpakis, who is co-founder and CEO of Thymia, a mental health tech startup building video games that can accurately detect whether a patient has depression by analysing biomarkers, including voice, video and behaviour using artificial intelligence. Amelia also won Young Innovators Award 2020 to 2021, and she was recently named one of the top scientists for mental health worldwide. So I'm extremely excited to have her as a guest on What the Health Tech. Amelia, welcome to the podcast. Hi, lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It's very nice. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm really, really excited to talk to you. I think the stuff you guys are doing is absolutely fantastic. So I think first up, if you can give our listeners a bit of an overview of what you do and what inspired you to set the company up. Sure, absolutely. So Themia is a mental health tech startup. We're based here in London and our mission is to make mental health as objectively measurable and as monitorable as physical health. So in the same way that a physical health clinician uses something like a thermometer or a blood pressure cuff to monitor physical health in terms of symptoms and conditions, we are basically building the equivalent of a blood pressure cuff for mental health. Um, So that's kind of the the overview to give you an idea of how we're positioning ourselves uh, in terms of how we do it. As you very nicely said in the intro, Uh, We basically use a combination of different types of data that we gather from our users. Um, So we get our users to interact with us with different gamified activities. And these um, gather three types of data. They look at people's voice patterns. So we're analyzing how they sound and what they're saying. Secondly, we look at video. So this is everything we can pick up from a smart device camera. It could be your eye gaze patterns. It could be your facial micro expressions. It could be upper body movements. It could be twitching, things like that. And then finally, we look at what you're actually doing in our activities. So are you reacting quickly when we show you something? Are you reacting slowly? How are you tapping on the screen, swiping? All of that is super valuable information. We combine all of that, and then at the end, we can uh, make a judgment as to whether someone may or may not have a particular condition. Um, In particular, we're looking at major depression, generalized anxiety, and most recently, ADHD. But we can also go in a lot more depth and look at what the particular symptoms of these conditions might be and try to isolate these. So we can say both whether someone may have a condition, but also how they're experiencing that condition. So things like fatigue levels, memory issues, mood swings, we can kind of capture all of that. Um, That's kind of an overview of what we do. Uh, That's in the clinical space. So we work with clinics directly, clinicians, secondary care, but also um, primary care most recently. Um, However, we've also just started expanding into the wellness space too. So we're offering our models um, for basically everyone to be able to use uh, and giving kind of more lighter touch feedback. So telling you a little bit more about your exhaustion levels, your stress levels. So not directly diagnosing, but kind of telling you a little bit more about your mental health so you can take action if you want. I think that's fantastic to be able to use all of these things that everybody is doing every day anyway, and their sort of mannerisms and things like that as well is, is such a clever way to to hopefully diagnose things a little bit quicker than they might do if they'd gone down sort of the more regular route? Yeah, absolutely. The issue that people don't usually 
know about when it comes to, to mental health is, uh, unfortunately, the tools that clinicians have to hand are the same tools that they've had for the past 100 years. Basically, they are questionnaires. Uh, they ask people to rate on a scale of one to four or one to 10 how they feel about certain things. And that is kind of fraught with all sorts of issues, difficulties, biases are introduced. And of course, people properly understand what you're asking them so they can answer how they want. So if I, if I was a clinician and I was to try and see if you may have depression symptoms, I would basically just say on a scale of one to four, can you tell me how sad you feel? Or can you tell me whether you've been considering harming yourself? The person can very much say exactly what they want to portray. Um, we're trying to get around that by giving more objective handles um, and also making people feel a little less um, uncomfortable. Um, when it comes to answering these types of questions, people culturally, um, in terms of their age and in terms of gender, they can, you know, they may not want to answer exactly these questions. So we're getting around that as well. Yeah, I was just going to say, does it help from a maybe like a being really honest point of view as well? Because I guess if you're basing it on, you know, how you look at things, how you how quickly you kind of respond to things and that sort of thing, it's harder to almost hide that, I guess, than it is to write an answer in a questionnaire. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we're trying to get to the kind of the, the core or the truth of the matter and also identify your symptoms in a way that maybe even yourself you may not have understood or you may not have realized. Um, but of course, the clinician's opinion is super important as well. So if they know, for instance, from a history of looking at this particular individual that they suffer, they suffer from um, sleep disturbances or they've been having issues in taking their medication or something like that, um, our AI models allow room for the clinician's opinion to be plugged in as well. And so it's never us making a decision entirely on our own. We work together with the clinician always. Um, so the combined kind of um, effort and output is much better than say if you just had the questionnaires or just the clinician alone. Yeah, of course. I mean, you, you touched on there about, you know, for the last hundred years, things haven't really moved on that much in terms of diagnosing um, depression, mental health conditions. But I guess when it comes to physical health, that's exactly what's happened. You know, we've got all of these kind of new things. Um, so as an expert in using language as a, um, a biomarker for cognition, when did you realise how this could be used to, to diagnose a mental health condition? Oh, that's, that's a great question. So uh, before founding Themia, we founded Themia about three years ago. Um, before that, I was actually a researcher for about 12 years. So I was always, um, during that time, I had the same specialty throughout that time. I looked at different types of patients and I always analyzed how they used language. And this was always for me in my research, kind of using language as a biomarker. Um, so in the beginning, I worked with Alzheimer's patients, Parkinson's patients, um, a little bit of aphasia. So kind of like older age people. And there I would look at language use as a marker for a cognitive decline to see kind of how far along they are. But then moving into schizophrenia, depression, more mood disorders, I ended up um, also looking at it there as a measure to see response to treatment. So I was always aware that this can be used in this way. Um, what I wasn't aware of was that it was not being used in this way. I kind of naively thought that everything we're finding out in research, like in amazing universities, so I was at UCL for a long time, and I thought UCL is kind of, at that point it was 
it was wavering between first and second in the world for neuroscience. Uh, so we were kind of competing with Harvard. And I was thinking, oh, amazing. Everything we're finding out in, in research here is going to be used by clinicians. That's not the reality at all. Um, and I didn't realize that until my best friend developed depression. She was also an academic. Um, and unfortunately, with academics, this is actually really common. That's a whole other topic in itself. Um, <laughs> but it does mean that um, we didn't really think anything of it. And I thought, oh, she'll see a clinician. They'll, they'll see how she's doing. And, um, you know, they'll put her on some treatment and she'll be fine. Um, only, unfortunately, it didn't actually go that way. She ended up seeing people in the university, then in the NHS. She got put on a really long waiting list. Eventually, she decided to pay to see a psychiatrist. And none of them actually saw how bad her condition was. And just two days after seeing her psychiatrist, she ended up trying to take her own life. And when that happened, I was the one who found her. And you can imagine kind of the whole experience was incredibly traumatic, but also how guilty, like we all felt that we didn't realize how bad the condition was. But after I got over that as a concept or as like a, a set of feelings, I started to question why her psychiatrist didn't see this coming or why the NHS didn't actually act sooner. And that's when I realized that actually they are still just using questionnaires. There's nothing else to hand. And if like my friend, you're intelligent enough to know that if you say you want to harm yourself or you want to do something, you know, they may, um, they may seek to section you or they may seek to intervene in a way that you might find quite frightening. And so you're not going to say that. And that's what happened. And um, that's when I realized actually there's so much more that can be done um, to avoid these questions or to supplement the questions, to help clinicians, to give them better handles. And if somebody like myself doesn't actually go into the industry and bring that research, then it's never actually going to happen. And so that was really the impetus to start Themia um, and to bring not only my research, but that of really, really amazing other um, scientists. So we have, um, we've had the great pleasure of being able to um, bring on board the world's um, leading expert in multisensory signal processing. So basically putting together different types of physical signals to detect mood issues like depression. So we're building on my research, but also that of so many other amazing, amazing scientists. So we can actually do this. Sorry, that was a long answer, but... Uh... No, it was a great answer. And I think it, it sort of opens up almost another question about, you know, when you first started, it obviously takes lots of different people with those different skill sets to come together to almost to create the right system, the right, mm -hmm. you know, it's not a video game, but the the sort of the way it kind of works. So it can it can sort of capture all of these different different elements and, and almost help with that diagnosis as well. So how did you kind of go about um, meeting your co-founder and, and how did you sort of build the business starting, starting there? Yeah, I think it was quite an interesting journey. Um, I came straight from academia. So I just quit my postdoc and um, I was looking for a way to build this. I had the idea. And then I found out about this accelerator program in the UK called Entrepreneur First. Um, they're kind of, for listeners, they're kind of like Y Combinator, but the UK or European equivalent of that and a much earlier stage. So they specialize in bringing together individuals with very different backgrounds who may or may not have a business idea, 
but they put them into these cohorts of say 100 people and you very quickly iterate and team up break up pair up break up and the aim is to build kind of a team of two individuals who are complementary in their skill sets one becomes a ceo one becomes a cto or cso or whatever else is needed and you pursue a particular business idea and then you get some funding from them very small amount but they set you up and they kind of help you get on that journey of um fundraising with all the pros and cons that come with that uh, but that's kind of the journey i went on as well so I was incredibly lucky that on my cohort, I had Stefano, uh, who ended up becoming my co-founder. He's the CTO of Themia. Um, and he really just had the perfect skill set for what we wanted to build. Um, and I have to admit that going in, I wasn't expecting to become the CEO of the company. I was expecting <laughs> to be the CSO, the more sciencey person. Um, didn't turn out that way. And I'm actually really glad because it really opened up this whole other way of working for me. And I've been incredibly grateful to be able to do this in this way. But anyway, um, back to Stefano. So he came from a background um, very different from mine. He has a PhD in theoretical physics. And then he worked for about eight years as a quant in large investment banks. So Citibank, JP Morgan. And there he built simple and complex predictive models for traders on the trading floor so helping them kind of make trades and uh, at some point as he puts it very eloquently he got tired of shuffling money around very efficiently by the people <laughs> and he wanted to he knew like these models are immensely powerful and can be used in different ways so um, he joined DF um, not really knowing what he was going to build he heard me pitch the idea for Themia, and that was kind of when he realized, and we teamed up. And that was on the 1st of April, 2020. And it's been now almost three years. Um, in the beginning for the first year, it's just the two of us. Mm -hmm. um, we had very little funding, very little resources, but we managed just the two of us to actually build out the platform almost fully, um, be able to gather voice, video, and behavioral data. We built our first little video games. And we were able to start um, gathering data from individuals. We secured more funding and then we ended up growing the team. And that's when you kind of bring in as much expertise as you can. Um, so yeah, we were incredibly lucky to be able to team up and also go on that journey with all of the ups and downs in it. Yeah, it, I mean, it certainly sounds like it's almost, you know, people talk about fate and, and things meant to be, but like yeah. you said, there's so many of these that actually for you guys both to be on that particular one, mm, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've discussed this quite a lot together and said if if it hadn't been, you know, for the pairing or the, the partnership we built, probably we wouldn't have been able to found the company within that cohort. There wasn't really anyone else on the cohort who suited us well enough. And it just so happened that we also suit each other very well in terms of character like it's not about finding another person who's like you it's about finding the opposite of you and you end up balancing each other out that's super important in a kind of a co-founding team or like a small startup I end up being always the super positive optimistic one and he's you know the opposite of that <laughs> that's very diplomatic <laughs> but yeah it was it was um you know it's it's great that we were able to 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 meet and to make this happen. I think probably we would have ended up building something. Um, I would have built probably something similar, but it would have taken me a, a lot longer. 
and it would have been a lot harder as a journey so yeah and I think from from what you're saying as well he didn't really know exactly what he wanted to get into as well but he had the skill set so yeah it sounds like the perfect partnership to be honest so um I mean talking about that obviously you've touched on a little bit about how um how Themia works Mm -hmm. so how does it actually work so obviously you know you've mentioned that it uses video game technology um it's about you know making mental health assessments faster more accurate more objective so can you tell us a little bit about exactly how it does work yeah sure so um the main components of a themia assessment are um, a number of small gamified activities each of these activities takes between kind of 30 seconds to two three minutes to complete um and we allocate slightly different ones depending on what condition we're looking at or what symptoms we think somebody might have. But altogether, the full assessment will be you go through four or five activities. Um, It takes about 10, 12 minutes in total. And then at the end, you get a score. The activities, some of them focus on voice. So we may get you to describe a beautiful animated illustration. We may get you to read out loud some stuff. So basically trying to elicit speech from you. Um, we have other ways as well of kind of um, getting you to talk. And then some of the games are focusing more on your behavior. So we're looking at your memory patterns. So we might show you a card game that has numbers. We might show you um, a game that's kind of spread out over um, the the screen and you have to kind of uh, tick boxes, not tick boxes, uh, click on boxes kind of like as they flash. And this allows us to get to more of the symptoms essentially. But it's a combination of these types of little games um please don't imagine for any of the listeners that this is super sophisticated in terms of gaming um it's not intended to be another you know legend of zelda or skyrim or whatever it's like that (laughs) very simple games but what we've been able to do is make them so engaging that even people with depression or really bad fatigue or really bad loss of interest or pleasure in doing stuff um who may not want to talk normally we can get them to engage with us really well So that was kind of the goal with going with games. Um, So the way it works is depends on the environment. Um, In the beginning, we offered this just to secondary care clinicians. So as a patient, you would go to your clinician and if they're working with us, they would get you to do an assessment before your first appointment. You do the appointment with your clinician. um, He has or she has access to the results then you continue to do the assessments like once a week or once every other week and um, your clinician continues to get your scores. Um, That's how we started out. Now we've started working with clinics where you may not have um, a mental health condition, you may have a physical health condition and we're brought in to check to see if you may have a comorbid mental health condition. If then um, we're looking at the wellness space that we're going into now, um, you might be able to access Themia through your EAP provider. So you're in a big company, you may be working with one of the companies we work with who offer this as an added mental health benefit. So you can do it in your day-to-day life um, and then it will flag up if there's something that needs to be looked at essentially. Does that help Clara? It absolutely does. I mean, from a from a business point of view as well, I mean, it, you know, there's so much emphasis now on, on businesses looking after their employees, especially when it comes to mental health. So I think for, for that to be a, an option within businesses that then something could be detected that then people can get help that they need a lot quicker just feels like a massive game changer to me. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, People tend to think about mental health only when it gets to the point 
that it's mental illness or when when it get, becomes clinical suddenly all, all of a sudden people are talking about mental health when you hear mental health you always think depression you think anxiety you think eating disorders the reality is mental health just like physical health is actually a continuum it goes from poor all the way through to really good um there is no system to measure where you're at whether you're at poor or whether you're at good the lack of objective measurement tools is actually all pervasive um, i think this is something that people kind of overlook so what we're trying to do is to introduce these objective measurements throughout that continuum to become essentially the infrastructure for mental health everywhere and that includes when you're at your clinician whether it's your psychiatrist whether it's your gp but also includes you know when you're just going to work normally when you do not have a clinician looking at you for mental health or maybe you are you know an athlete or you want for other reasons to look at your um, mental health and your stress levels etc we provide the tools to help make that happen essentially yeah and i think that you know that saying almost a picture paints a thousand words feels really powerful when we're talking about what you're discussing there um, I think to think features, you know, like how our faces or our eyes move or how we speak and can sort of understand symptoms and diagnose someone who might have depression or another mental health condition does definitely feel like a, a huge leap forward. Um, so how can um, Themia benefit patients and clinicians in that first instance when it comes to, to diagnosis and treatment? So in this case, Let's focus, I guess, on the on the UK to, to start with. The way we would be able to help patients would be, say, if you're going to see your GP for a regular checkup, um, in the same way that maybe your GP, after a certain age, they start to take your blood pressure every time you go. Um, this has recently become a thing for me. I was like, oh, okay, I've got to that age. <laughs> They're taking my blood pressure. Um, the idea is... I think that makes your blood pressure go up when they yeah, take it. it. <laughs> <laughs> Stress out. But um, I think that uh, the idea basically would be for Themia to also be used in a similar way. So when you're in the waiting room, you do a little assessment, essentially, or maybe they send it to you before you go to, the, um, to your GP. And then we're screening you, essentially, at the same time. We haven't got to that point here in the UK just yet, but it is something we're doing with our partner clinics uh, elsewhere in the world. So um, we're testing it out, for instance, in Brazil. They are incredibly um, accepting of new technology there, which is something we didn't realize sooner, but this is kind of how um, we're helping there. And the idea is basically we will look at a patient's um, voice. We will look and pick different features within their voice and within what they're saying. Same with their facial expressions. And even if they're getting stressed, as you said earlier, just measuring you makes you stressed out, like the blood pressure thing. Um, the great thing about Themia is um, we are able to actually build individualized models for each patient. So if you get stressed out every time we're measuring you, eventually the model will figure that out and will say, okay, this is your baseline stress level, let's see how you're changing on top of that. Or this is your accent, you come from Ireland or you come from Australia, you're gonna sound different. Um, we'll learn that about you and then we'll be able to kind of calibrate. And then that makes picking up signs of mental illness, not necessarily diagnosing, but triaging, let's say, uh, and kind of putting you into the right um, stream or pathway of care. That helps speed things up. It means you get the help you need sooner and it saves a lot of money for the NHS and for other um, you know, government 
uh, funded organizations. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you sort of mentioned there um, about technology and, you know, we've, we've touched on physical health in terms of, you know, there's lots of things that we use technology wise, you know, mammograms, x-rays, blood mm-hmm. tests. Um, how do you think we can develop more tools to diagnose mental health um, and make sure we use technology such as artificial intelligence, machine learning um, to help do to help with this? I think it's it's a very difficult one because mental health, the biggest issue is that it really is invisible. So it's very easy for people to discount it. It's very easy for people to overlook it. I think what we need is technologies like Themia's, but others out there as well that can in a way make mental health more visible. And that's creating that awareness. I think that's really important as a first step. That's definitely going to get more people to be excited and to build technology that can help uh, individuals with with mental health issues. Um, I think the other really important thing is AI is super powerful, but particularly when it comes to something invisible like mental health, where you can't really control as easily to see if something's going wrong in the model, it becomes really important that you do this in the most ethical, sensitive way. Um, You see a lot of companies like, Microsoft, I think, was one of the recent ones um, where they've been developing kind of facial recognition technology or facial analysis technology. And all of a sudden it becomes apparent that this technology um, is biased against, say, women. So it will automatically say that because somebody is a woman, they are going to be more sad or they're going to be more angry by default. And this is kind of baked into the model. So this makes it a biased model that's not actually reflective necessarily of reality. And what these companies then go and do is they just say, oh, the model doesn't work great. We're just going to rescind it. Instead of correcting it, or instead of building a model from scratch to not be biased or to be ethical, they just rescind it. And this sends such a bad message. It's like, oh, AI is dangerous. The only thing we can do is to take it off the market or to stop using it. What I think is the future or should be the future of AI and mental health in particular is creating models that are controlled and ethical um, from the start. So you're making sure that the population you're sampling are um, is properly controlled, but also you build in handles into your AI models that make it visible when the model becomes biased. So we do that all the time in our models. We're always checking to see does the model think that someone might have depression simply because, I don't know, um, they're a particular age or they are a particular sex or they come from a particular cultural background? Um, AI models don't think, they don't know, they don't understand. So you need to make that judgment for them as a human. And then also I think it's really important that we always bring in the clinician as well um ultimately ai is super powerful but it can only go so far you do need somebody's like you know expert opinion to supplement it as well so i guess awareness um ethical ai that's unbiased and always bringing in um a clinician so having that human in the loop um as they say yeah that um that human being part of it i think a lot of people see AI, machine learning, and instantly think robots, and there's no human involved at all. Yeah. Um, but actually, there is always a reason why there's 
there's a human being involved because they yeah. can't do everything. And like you mentioned, you know, it doesn't think, it doesn't kind of know all the bias stuff. So mm-hmm. actually you you'd still do need that that human element. It's ridiculously important that that's there. Absolutely. And I think it's it's so detrimental when you see companies just ignore that. There's plenty of other people out there kind of looking at biomarkers in different ways, not necessarily voice or, or video. They they can use other things as well, like heart rate monitoring, etc. Um, but they just skip the clinician altogether. They go directly to the patient and they start to diagnose um, and they don't involve clinicians in that process. That can be incredibly dangerous in so many ways, but they just skip it. And the fact that regulations are not keeping up, let's say, um, in terms of speed with the advances in AI, at least not in the in Europe and the UK, they are kind of a little bit better in the US, but that allows people to kind of go and do that. Um, and there's a very kind of fine line between what becomes dangerous versus, you know, helpful. Um, and I think a lot of people are kind of treading on the wrong side of that. Um, I think it's also like really kind of a very interesting um, example of this could be um, so ChatGPT, like it's a very, very powerful AI system that can answer so many questions for you, can help you write code, it can help you design stuff, it can be used in in amazing ways, it can also be used in really silly, stupid ways. Um, And there is, for instance, um, we've just seen a company that is using it to help answer questions from individuals who come to that app, they're individuals with mental health issues, they come to the app and instead of talking to a clinician or a therapist or someone, they interact with ChatGPT. It's been embedded and they don't know that they're interacting with ChatGPT. So they ask, oh, uh, I wanna hurt myself or something. Um, Can you help me do it? If you know how to answer or how to ask that question properly, it may be that ChatGPT ends up telling you how to do it. Instead of alerting someone, it might actually help you, which is obviously the opposite. This is just an example, right, of how it can be yeah. used. Um, but if you just make that extra step of adding in the clinician or making sure to have safeguards, you know, you can use AI really powerfully. But a lot of people don't do it that way. Yeah, it's that, um, and you want people to to be able to trust it as well. I mean, we you know, with everything we do, we work across the whole, um, the whole of healthcare. Um, we use AI within, within our system to help basically improve patient safety. Um, but yeah, you, you want people to, to make, to be aware of that data and to trust it, to be able to help make the right decisions basically. So when you see it being used in an incorrect way or an unethical way, um, yeah, it can be detrimental to how it can be used in such a, a life-changing way as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the number of times I've heard people or um, talked to people who say, oh, I saw X being done in this way. Um, and then it kind of tarnishes us in in a way with the same brush, if that's the expression. Um, it makes it very hard for us then to be able to say, actually, no, we do it in a much more ethical and better way. And there's a reason we didn't go directly to consumers. Like we could have just gone to individuals and started diagnosing or treating or preventing or you know just going directly to consumers because that's where you know it's the biggest market that's where all the money is um we chose to do it properly we went directly to psychiatrists worked with them you know got everything properly labeled it took us years to build up our data set 
And only after you've done that ethically and fully and properly, then can you go to consumers. Um, but it does make things uh, quite difficult <laughs> for us when, when yeah. we've it done improperly. No, definitely not. But you know, the, the hardest the, the hardest things are, are worth doing. Basically, the you know the life changing things um, definitely worth worth getting them right without a doubt. So, speaking of that, what's next for Themia and and your research? So we've been, as I as I mentioned a little bit, we've been going more um, into the wellness space. So we want to basically make our technology available to as many people as possible who can benefit in so many more ways. Not just say when you got to the point where you need to be diagnosed or triaged, etc., but earlier than that, at the point where we can detect some early signs and maybe help prevent them from deteriorating further. So in that sense, we are making our models available more widely. Um, I'm really, really excited that the, the wellness models we're working on now are actually able to be used in so many more areas. So we are actually um, going into um, spaces, not just mental wellness, but so fitness people, enthusiasts can use our models now. Um, we've been uh, talking to long haul lorry drivers and to people in aerospace who need ways to track things like exhaustion levels, fatigue levels. We can actually help in that way. Um, so you're kind of using our models in a much broader environment, helping a lot more people. And that's kind of the next step i think for us um all the time we're still moving forward with the clinical side we're getting further regulatory approvals as we go we're expanding to more conditions i mentioned we've um we've just added in adhd we've started looking at there's plenty more that our partnering clinics have um, that we want to go into um so yeah it's very exciting we've also started considering um adding in more data points so looking at more data streams like wearable devices so you know, the more data you have, the better your model gets. So there's never such a thing as too many data streams. So I couldn't agree more. Again, with what we do, the the better data, the more data. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's what helps develop that um, that learning going forward. I think, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So you you also mentioned that you're um, you're in Brazil. So I'm guessing um, Themia is is a worldwide um, business. Yeah, so we're, we're based in London, but actually, because our models are language agnostic, so they just work across different languages because we're kind of building more towards the individual, um, we've actually been able to expand to a lot more countries than I thought would be possible or anything. I, I couldn't have imagined it. So we're now in the UK, but we're also live in the US, in Brazil. Um, we're going live in Greece, um, Spain, Italy, Indonesia, India. We've got clients kind of basically <laughs> everywhere, which is great. Um, and our technology is super scalable. So you can kind of, it doesn't matter how many more uh, clients we get or where they are, where the clinics are based, we can serve all of them. So it's very, it's very exciting. It feels really powerful to be able to, to help so many people. We've got about, um, I think, looking at all the, the clients that we have at the moment, by the end of the year, we could have hundreds of thousands of people using this, which is so, so amazing. That's fantastic. Is there, um, is there any sort of like age um, limits or anything like that on it in terms of how, you know, do you have to be a certain age to be able to kind of, for it to detect certain things or is it just, I guess, for anyone? Yeah, so the models we built at the moment have been calibrated um, on our data set 
that includes people from 18 through to the age of 65. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were quite, quite careful when we were gathering our first data points. Uh, so we have over 1 billion data points from five and a half thousand people in that age group. We've now started expanding. We have clinics in Brazil using it from, I think their youngest patient is 63 and the oldest is 93. So we're looking at a much older population now as well. And because we started expanding into ADHD, we're partnering with clinics with younger people too. We've done adolescents at the moment, but we're also aiming to start gathering data from children too. Of course, this is done always within the clinic setting with the clinician present, and also the parents give consent. Um, whenever anyone interacts with our platform, we get kind of informed consent. They know exactly what's happening when we're switching stuff on, like voice, video, like camera, etc. Um, it's all very active, and that also makes it, you know, a lot more better accepted by patients. They know exactly what's happening when it's happening. It did mean though that to begin with, we wanted to make sure it was just adults. Now we're expanding, but uh, hopefully at some point there will be no restrictions anymore in terms of our data set will have kind of all ages. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It, it, it actually was the ADHD um, point that made me wonder whether it was it was something that could be used in, in sort of younger, yeah. younger people. Cause I guess I mean, that's something that does get diagnosed or sometimes isn't diagnosed quite as quickly as it maybe could be. Absolutely. I think the, um, I would love to see Themia be able to be used, say, in schools um, to help monitor mental health in, in, in younger people as well. Um, there in particular, we know that questionnaires really don't work, um, either because there's a lack of self-awareness uh, or because, you know, uh, Adolescents are adolescents and they won't talk to you a lot of the time in <laughs> situations. So having something that gets through and is engaging and fun to do um, actually could help a lot. Yeah, and it, and it being a video game element as well, it just feels like it would be something that, that yeah. would definitely engage much better than, like you said, questionnaires or something like that. Absolutely. So if there are any of our listeners that want to find out more, reach out to you, how can they get in touch or, or find out a little bit more about Themia? Uh, so you can always reach out to us via our website. It's very outdated. We're releasing a new website very soon, actually. We're working on it now. Um, but you can contact us through the website. So it's um, themia.ai, T-H-Y-M-I-A.ai. You can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um let me see how else you can also just email us directly so you can email info at themia.ai and if you have any questions or you want to use this you're a clinician you're a patient you're just a regular member of the public we're always very happy to, to hear from everyone and um, we aim to get back to you super quick fantastic we'll pop those in there when we when we upload this onto um our platforms we'll pop those details in as well so um everyone can see those um, so thanks, Amelia. Um, at the end of every episode of, of What the Health Tech, we ask everybody what their health tech moment is. So the question started off as a bit of fun. We've got lots of people with weird and wonderful stories. We've got lots of emotional stories. Um, so we just wanted to know what your What the Health Tech moment is um, that you'd like to share with us. I guess I have maybe a, a couple. I would say for me the most powerful thing is when we first started seeing people use themia um, in order to start um, identifying symptoms of depression and we started to see that we could actually pick that up and we could 
predict like a clinician's opinion or we could predict what these other questionnaires would say um and i think seeing that in practice kind of was so emotional for me after seeing what happened with my friend i just kept thinking if she had had this probably she wouldn't have got to the point she did and that was just it was a sad but it was also a very happy moment because i can't go back and change what happened and i can't help her um but i can help others like her so i think for me that was the most important moment and i think that is a very powerful and poignant end to to a fantastic episode i'm sure it's been really really useful for for all of our listeners to hear about themia um i've loved it it's it's super exciting and i kind of can't wait to see where where you are in another 12 months it it sounds fantastic it's been such a pleasure Um, thank you so much thank you um and thank you everyone for listening so join us next thursday for another new episode don't forget to rate and subscribe and if you have any questions for us or our guests email whatthehealthtech at radarhealthcare.com